sweating blood. Some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I don't agree at all. These are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ. C.S. Lewis Jesus went on with his disciples to his usual place to pray on the Mount of Olives. When they got there, he warned his disciples, pray so that you won't give in to temptation. He went a little further to be alone and got on his knees to pray. Father, if it's possible for you to not have me endure what's coming, please help me avoid it. But if it's what you have for me, I want to do it your way, not mine. God sent an angel to encourage him and give him strength, but he was in incredible anguish and he prayed even more intensely. His sweat turned red like blood as it dripped from him. From Luke 22, 39 to 44. This story from the life of Jesus, like so many others, is a bit understated and overlooked. Sure, we tell ourselves Jesus sweated blood or something because he was carrying the weight of the world. But this actually happens to people. Hermosiderosis is an extremely rare condition that usually occurs under very strenuous conditions. Other than that, the causes aren't really understood. It happens when the capillaries, the tiny blood vessels that transfer blood from the arteries to the tissues that need them and then suck it back into the veins, when those rupture. The blood mixes with sweat and the diluted blood-sweat mixture is excreted from pores in the skin. It is pretty gross. You can look up pictures on the internet, but I don't suggest it. Soldiers sometimes experience this condition before battle. People during the bombing raids in London during the Blitz of World War II reported the condition to doctors. The condition itself isn't really dangerous, but it is almost always experienced in dangerous circumstances when the fight or flight response is triggered. Jesus knew what was coming. The Son of God was going to allow himself to be tortured to death and would die of catastrophic pain, merciless brutality, and full-body trauma. The damage done to his physical and emotional systems would be so severe that complete systemic shutdown would occur. Neither the mind nor the body could sustain the damage. He knew what was coming. He would be flogged with what's called a cat of nine tails. It's a kind of whip that has chunks of bone and pottery attached to the ends. During the process of that flogging, the flesh would be ripped from his body, exposing the ribs and leaving skin hanging like ribbons. The blood loss would be severe. When the soldiers would place a robe on him in mockery, the blood would clot and the material would almost fuse with his flesh. When they ripped it off again, well, one can only dare to imagine that kind of pain. They would repeatedly punch him in the face with closed fists, most likely resulting in a serious concussion as he struggled to remain conscious. They would follow that with a ring of thorns shaped like a crown that they would beat into his head using a staff like a club. After a sleepless night in agony and anticipation, he would be dragged from his cell and forced to carry his own cross, usually made of something like a large tree branch, up a steep hill outside of the city. Under normal circumstances, this would be extremely difficult. But he would be so physically traumatized from the night before that he would fall repeatedly until he couldn't go any further under the load. When he did finally reach the site of his execution, the soldiers would pound huge nails through his wrists and feet before raising his cross into the air for him to slowly die under the weight of his own body. Those condemned to die this way by the Roman Empire were stripped completely naked to add humiliation to death. 
Crucifixion was one of the ways that the Romans warned would-be criminals just how bad dying could really be. There are stories of people choosing to be burned alive as an alternative to crucifixion. That's how bad it really was. But the torture Jesus went through before his crucifixion was a special treatment. The physical trauma would push his body beyond what can be endured without complete system failure. The shock to his system would cause his body to give up and his heart to actually physically explode. Most of those condemned to die by crucifixion would still be alive until the executioners would walk up and break their legs, make it impossible for them to push themselves up to inhale. After that, they would slowly die from a lack of oxygen. But this would be unnecessary for Jesus. He would die from trauma before this forced suffocation could be induced. To make sure, they would stab him with a spear and blood and body fluids would be emptied from his abdomen. Having more than likely experienced a massive heart attack, the structure of his heart would be overwhelmed and the outer cardiac walls would fail, which would result in a complete rupture. Going through hell. This is what Jesus knew was coming. As he prayed the night before, the anticipation caused him deep anxiety, but it was more. His closest friends would betray him. The people that he came to save would become a bloodthirsty mob. His mother would have to watch as he was tortured to death. He would be mocked without mercy. But worst of all, he would actually experience hell. Now, when we think of hell, we think of fire and smoke and the various layers of Dante's Inferno and all its imaginations of cruelty. Dante's account, of course, is more political satire than anything else, but he does something very right when he explains the posted sign above the door of hell that says in Latin, Lechante one speranza foi contrante. Abandon hope, all ye that enter here. Hell is best described as the complete lack of the presence of God. His ever-present, all-encompassing, perfect love is our constant companion even when we don't realize it. Hell is the end of that. It is the end of hope that we will ever experience it again. God is perfect love, and eternity without love is the definition of hopelessness. David explains the omnipresent nature of God when he writes in the lyrics to the song in Psalm 139, 7-11. Is there any place I can go to avoid your spirit, to be out of your sight? If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go to the underground, you're there. If I flew on morning's wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already waiting. On the cross, Jesus experiences utter hopelessness as the first living person to ever experience the absolute lack of God's presence. It is hell on earth. His cries sound like the screams of the damned. In the garden, as he prays, Jesus understands what will happen to him as he carries all of the evil of every person that has ever lived or ever will live, that God will abandon him and that he will abandon all hope. He will experience the hell that is being abandoned and forgotten and forsaken by God. And the pain of knowing what is to come is almost too much to take. In what looks like a moment of weakness, Jesus begs for mercy from his Father. The anxiety is so intense that his capillaries rupture and blood flows from his pores and drops to the ground in the garden. That's the true power of anxiety, a force so strong that it has physical effects. Traumatic betrayal. In my work with people that have experienced great trauma, I've studied the effects of emotional distress. 
Studies of adverse childhood experiences, known as ACEs among the initiated, have shown that the long-term effects of unresolved childhood trauma are a major risk factor for heart disease, stroke, cancer, COPD, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and suicide. The way we as humans deal with the things that happen to us as children can affect our physical health for our entire lives and even contribute to an untimely death. Chronic stress and anxiety aren't just mental health issues. They cross over into flesh and blood. I've chosen a life of great stress. As Samuel Chan said in his incredible book, Leadership Pain, the Classroom for Growth. Pain. If you're not hurting, you're not leading. Your vision for the future has to be big enough to propel you to face the heartaches and struggles you will find along the way. I've chosen to lead. And I've decided to embrace, sometimes knowingly and sometimes unknowingly, pain. I often explain to people that there are no-nonsense kinds of people, but I'm not one of those. I'm a nonsense kind of person. Intense disagreements and loss of respect, relationships, and sleep are all part of leading. I wish it weren't true, but it is. Betrayal is a constant companion. Being misunderstood and having your actions attributed to the worst possible intentions are par for the course. Criticism and disparagement are perpetual partners. Envy and resentment are more common among your peers than admiration. Making matters worse, the people that you have helped the most are the most likely to hurt you. Those you mentor and rescue feel the need to separate themselves from you as they grow, like a teenager finding their own identity. It's natural. It's also very painful. Like all leaders, I've experienced all of this in excess. I've also had to play the role of a truth teller and have literally been hated for it. I've experienced lies and attacks that would surprise the uninitiated. I've experienced the stress of having a family, dealing with loved ones with mental illness, raising a child with special needs, and the loss of loved ones. We all carry some heavy weight, but recently, for the first time in my life, I felt like it was more than I could take. I felt like the hits were coming so fast and furious that I couldn't keep track. In 12 months' time, I had a sister-in-law with deadly cancer, another one with hemorrhaging so bad that the doctors told us she wouldn't make it through the night. One of my parents had a life-altering cancer, the other one had terminal cancer, and my brother was hit by a car, breaking the windshield with his face, likely sustaining serious brain damage. My immediate family faced a serious health crisis that had us in and out of doctors' offices and deeply entrenched in anxiety. In the same period of time, many of my closest friends were struggling with profound anxiety and one of the most important influences in my early spiritual development succumbed to depression and took his own life. For the first time in my life, I had a prolonged period of dealing with anxiety. I had three enormous building projects riding on my shoulders and more than 15 staff members counting on me to raise hundreds of thousands of extra dollars. Students in our mentoring program were in life-and-death situations. We had recently started a community of homes for single moms who came out of violence or trafficking situations. Quitting was not an option. Sleep was hard to come by, and anything resembling sustained peace of mind was far from me. Going to bed at night was like facing a gauntlet. I couldn't sleep, and when I did, I would wake up in a cold sweat with my heart racing. I could feel my pulse as it sped up to new heights. I was having nightmares about death when I did sleep. I had spent my life as an extremely emotionally disciplined person and had always been able to talk myself through any depression or mania, 
but I was failing to work my way out of anything. I was seeing a therapist for the first time in my life, and when I would tell him what I was doing to cope with my stress and anxiety, he would tell me that I was already doing the stuff of cognitive behavioral therapy that he would prescribe for me. Rest, over time, he explained, was the only solution. But rest seemed impossible, and time was not a luxury I had. I wasn't suicidal, but I was hopeless. It seemed like things would always be this way, or maybe things would even get worse. I'd always prided myself on being mentally tough. Now, like Elijah, I wanted to sit down and embrace depression. If not being okay is okay, then I was in pretty good company. I looked to the heroes of the faith, and I found something amazing. Moses suffered the effects of leadership. His anger and depression caused him to lose control on many occasions. Job's grief caused him to lose all peace. He said, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Jonah was so depressed that he helped the enemies of the Jews repent that he wanted to die. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to live than to die. He cries out to the God. Jeremiah suffered from rejection, loneliness, and poverty. At his lowest moments, he said, Curse be the day I was born. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? King David lived a life of near constant threat of death at the hands of Saul, the enemies of Israel, and even his own son. He wrote some of the saddest songs in history. Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I am in deep water and the floods overwhelm me. O God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones. They scoff. Where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? In his darkest hours... Jesus would even quote the song that he learned as a young Jewish boy when from the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus himself struggled with anxiety so profoundly that he wrestled with thoughts of death as he told Peter, James, and John, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Jesus, the abundant life giver, felt the crushing weight of grief so heavy that it felt like it would kill him. The same Jesus that encouraged us not to worry about tomorrow because God has our future in his hands was so distraught about what his tomorrow would bring that it felt like it was something he just couldn't take anymore. The God of the universe didn't want to be alone. He needed to pray to find the strength to face the coming anguish. The anticipation was almost as painful as the reality would be. At the lowest point in my life, a friend asked me, Do you still pray? I listened, I said, I'm afraid of what I might say if I say too much. I don't want to do any lasting damage to my relationship with God. I was being facetious about the last part, but not the first part. I wasn't talking much to God. I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say much. I felt abandoned, betrayed, and hopeless. I didn't want to say that to God. I tried to be Zen Christian and not ask questions. But I was wrong. Elijah, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Jonah, and Jesus had honest conversations with God. It's okay not to be okay. Certainly, I'm not any better than those guys, and God never smote any of them when they complained. Chances are, I'm not important enough to be the first to be 
smoted for airing a grievance. When you can talk about it. A few years ago, a friend called me to tell me she wasn't going to make it. She wasn't sure if she would just say goodbye or if she would ask for help. We talked about healthy habits, medical help, counseling. For the next month, I texted her every day until she was doing better. I knew the trauma that she had experienced as a child and that it had never really been dealt with. Almost a year later, we took a walk and she told me, I'm doing much better. I'm just not that person anymore who called you that day. She paused and she turned and she asked me a question. How do I know when I'm really okay? I looked at her and said, hey, I don't know the answer to that. But I do know one thing. When you can talk about it, it doesn't own you anymore. You own it. When it's just a part of your story, even a once very painful part, it becomes something that happened, but not a huge secret that no one can ever know about. Then you're not a victim anymore. You're a survivor. The difference between these incredible leaders in the Bible and me is that they talked it out with God. I didn't. I wanted to be strong. I wasn't strong. Jesus was strong. He anticipated the pain in the garden and he begged for mercy and God heard him. It wasn't weakness. It was reality. He was hurting. Even when our father doesn't answer the why questions, and he never did with any of those biblical leaders, he also doesn't punish the inquisitor. He engages in the conversation with us. Sometimes he sets us straight, like Job. Sometimes he sends a raven to feed us, like Elijah. Sometimes he sends an angel to give us strength, like he did with Jesus in the garden. But he never ignores us, even when that's what it feels like. Life is a fight. Birth is a bloody and traumatic event to both the mother and the child. Death is usually painful to both the dying and the survivors. Everything in between is either a fight or the stuff in between fights. God understands both our trauma and the anxiety that it brings. He just wants us to share the load with him. Anxiety is a not so gentle reminder that this life is tough and that he wants to walk along with us and help shoulder the load and look forward to the next life that doesn't have these troubles. He doesn't look down on us, even when we're grieved to the point of death or anxious to the point of sweating blood. Everything you know about Jesus is wrong. Jesus dealt with unthinkable anxiety. He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. He faced brutal pain with courage, but not because he was above it all. He was right in the thick of it. He walked through hell and he felt its full effects. He knew what was coming and knowing it caused him incredible stress. Change how you think about Jesus. We like to create a Zen Jesus mixed with Superman in our minds. The real Jesus got frustrated, wept at the pain of his friends, got angry and sweat blood under the stress of knowing the hell he would go through spiritually, physically, and emotionally on the cross. What does that say about how we handle the anxieties of this life? Challenge your assumptions. We think God doesn't want to hear anything negative from us when the entirety of scripture tells us something different. How can we have more honest conversations with God? Choose to live differently. How can we change our thinking about ourselves and our reactions towards others when it comes to facing pain? 
How can we share the load with God and the people he has in our life to help us and for us to help them?